This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And we're on episode 101 this time around, and as usual, we have a theme, Why Be a Critic, and a terrific guest, Laura Miller. But unusually, we also have a farewell. Our longtime producer, Andrea Tudhope, is headed to a new gig in Nashville. So this is her final show with us. And for the occasion, we thought we'd show you the wizard behind the curtain, who has made this show sound so much incredibly better. It is ridiculous. I was the previous producer of the show, and I stink compared to Andrea. Andrea Tudhope is an award-winning multimedia journalist based in Kansas City, Missouri in 2020. She was the senior coordinating producer for America Amplified, a CPB-funded public media community engagement initiative. And as a member of the leadership team, she coordinated the efforts of reporters and producers across 50-plus stations and launched a national talk show around the election, which I listened to and thought was terrific. Prior to that, Andrea spent five years at the Kansas City NPR affiliate KCUR, right down the street from me, producing a daily talk show and reporting daily news and long-term investigative features Before audio, Andrea was a print journalist in Colorado where she was part of the team behind the Pulitzer Prize winning series Other Than Honorable by investigative reporter Dave Phillips. Most importantly, of course, she has been producing fiction nonfiction. Andrea, we welcome you to our show a while ago. Welcome on the air. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Andrea, I share Whitney's uh, expression of enormous gratitude for improving our show, um, improving our process, improving really our sanity. I feel that Whitney will co-sign <laughs> that statement. That was the most important thing we talked about in our 100th episode, like how we don't argue anymore. We used to argue and I realized it's because Andrea prevents us from arguing by doing all that work that we used to have to fight about. It's true. I was actually thinking about that as I was listening. I was editing the podcast maybe right after I had accepted this job and I was like, well, they're in for it now. <laughs> Well, we should have mentioned it in that episode, but we're going to mention it now. That you have saved our relationship in many ways. And um, yeah, and I think your your audio expertise, I still remember some of your early suggestions. I was like, oh my God, I should know this. I don't know this. I'm not an audio professional. I'm so grateful that the professional is here. And I don't think I've ever had a chance to ask you this. I don't really know. You know, Whitney and I have backgrounds in print. Um, how did you end up moving from print to audio? So... Largely, I ended up in public radio because uh, that was kind of the best option here in Kansas City. Like, I really wanted to do local recording in Kansas City. And I also was really drawn to this idea of elevating um, people's stories in their own voices. That was super appealing to me. And yeah, over the years, I, I mean, I haven't really looked back. You and I met, I correct me if I get this wrong, but it was like a, a reading to raise money for Moliere's 400th anniversary or something like that? Some big anniversary from, was it Moliere? Yeah, yeah. We were, we were Kansas City celebrities performing in, (laughs) performing parts in a play by Moliere. Wait, and then. I've actually not heard this version of the story. This is much more specific. This is much more specific than what I heard. Whitney was like, I was at a, I was at a shindig and I met, I met a, I met an audio producer. No, Moliere. Okay. Yeah, it's the nerdiest, like cutest event. It's such a Kansas City type event, in my in my opinion. But yeah, so Whitney, you came up to me afterwards and you were like, "Hey, so you're an audio producer. I need a recommendation for a microphone." And I basically, in my head, I was like, "Cool, I need a job." So, 
and then we we had a drink and yeah that was that was that so um what made you think this would work <laughs> i i knew i could do it like whitney told me about what you guys had been doing and and that it was sort of hard work and as he was describing it i was like oh yeah i can definitely i can definitely manage this but the thing that's kind of funny to me is that i started this i started producing this right at the start of the pandemic right when i was launching a a national talk show that i actually launched two national talk shows last year i don't even know how i don't know how time worked over the past year but i managed it and it was great it was really fun to listen I feel like you and the three of us have not spent much time together, but your voices are in my head, you know? <laughs> I know what's so weird is that we went out and, and made the deal to that you were going to produce the podcast and it was a super uh, enjoyable meeting. And then mm-hmm. we have not seen each other in person since then. And I've <laughs> never met you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whitney, I think this is like the second time I've really seen you. So <laughs> <laughs> very strange. Well, we'll have to have a goodbye. Yes. Uh, beverage. Agreed. I was going to ask you, um, like one of my favorite parts of you producing the podcast has been um, that sometimes when you're editing, you text me your thoughts about listening to the show, <laughs> which is always, um, it's it's a little bit like Mystery Science Theater 3000, but for the show. And I wonder just, you know, if you had any favorite episodes or favorite recollections from editing the show or just... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, I really loved the episode on... Um, Palestinian and Israeli literature. That was that sort of took me back to my. I studied comparative literature and philosophy in college, and it kind of just took me back there. But um, no, so many of these episodes. I don't know if I've ever told you guys this, but I dream about them. Oh my god, what? <laughs> because I'm just like I'm just spending these hours alone listening to this these very thought provoking discussions, and I'll end up having conversations with people. I'm like, where did I? who's the author I was talking to recently who said this brilliant thing and it's always the podcast. I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't actually meet that author. But once again, they were, you know, I spent a lot of time with their their voice. Well, you did such great work on that episode because there were so many uh, references mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and authors who, you know, you, you had to make sure everything was spelled right. And it was just did a fantastic job. It was really great. Uh, because, of course, you also do the part where we put in the transcript and the show notes and all the stuff that goes up on LitHub. So you're pulling out these authors' names and, and they're not just said, they've become print, right? So the other thing you do is we're recording all three of us separately. Did you hear my me screw up and have my phone uh, notifications ding while you were talking there? I did hear that. I decided not to be upset about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the listeners will not hear that because we're all recording on separate devices and you will take out the part where I made that noise or you could leave it in just for fun. Um and then Andrea takes all three of these separate recordings, the guest and, and both Sugi and I, and then puts them all together. And that's how the, the po- that's why the podcast sounds so much better than it used to. Yeah, it's true. Every time my, my dog has developed a recent gift for either breaking in or out of where I'm recording, like I was like, maybe I should keep her in here so she doesn't cause problems. Maybe I should lock her outside. Either way, she just opens the door and or barks and Andrea has to <laughs> contend with contend with this sort of weirdness every time. I'm like, Andrea, there's a, there's a motorcycle revving on my, yes. revving on my street. I have... Um, you know, inexplicably plugged the thing into the other wrong thing. And can I FaceTime you around my living room to show you where I'm putting the gas? And you have your patience with that has been extraordinary. And I really appreciate you explaining all of that to us. So who are the lucky people that you're going to be working with next? Can you talk about that? So I actually can't talk about it yet, but there's going to be a press release. So when that's public, 
you know, but I will say I am moving to Nashville and I'm going to be, um, launching a show. So where should, where, where can they find this? Will they find this on your, your Twitter feed or? Yeah, I will, I will announce okay. it on the, on the platforms on my, on my Twitter. Tell people what your, what your, what your handle is. It's, it's my first and last name. It's very easy. It's Andrea Tudhope. Well, Andrea, um, we really appreciate uh, all of your work the past couple of years. It's I'm so glad to have met you. I'm so looking forward to whatever you're going to do next and just tons of luck. And thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. We are excited to have a wonderful guest for her final episode with us. So let's lean into our fears. Uh, writers are excited about and afraid of reviews. So, wait, I'm curious about which review of The Good Lieutenant was your favorite. Well, I mean, look, anytime anybody reviews the book, I am happy and appreciative. So I, it's like picking your favorite children. But uh, there was a review that came out in The Guardian by Charles Finch that's t- pinned tweet at the top of my Twitter profile. And, and I really loved that review. And why did you love that review? Well, that's a good question. I mean... On some level, as I was saying, you know, when you're publishing a book, you're grateful for any positive review or even any review, really, because, of course, it's hard to get reviews at all. And you're in the maelstrom of trying to sell the book and you want your publisher to be happy and reviews make them happy and hopefully sell books. Um, But Charles Fitch's review of my novel really was more like an act of criticism than just a review. And it situated the book in comparison to other Iraq war novels. And he had smart ideas about the implication of the book's reverse timeline. And he accurately sussed out the undertones and reverberations of specific scenes. You know, basically, I felt like he didn't just give a thumbs up or thumbs down, but he added to the book's meaning. Um, what was your favorite review for Love Marriage? Um, I think it was probably the critic Nandini Lal who wrote about it for the Washington Post. And I felt like she understood it on its own terms and saw things in it that other reviews hadn't necessarily perceived. And I appreciated the, yeah, the kind of the ways in which she called attention to things that other reviews hadn't necessarily gotten to. There is that, there are, I mean, you know, we do like try to put meaning into books. <laughs> you know, that, that's underneath the surface. I mean, it's, it's part of what writing is. And when, when a critic sees that craft, it's, it's, I'm deeply grateful. Um, so who do you wish had reviewed you? Well, I mean, there's lots of people. I mean, if you're, if you're wishing. <laughs> I think, you know, Stephen King, Toni Morrison. Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, dreams, dreams. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think if we're talking full-time book critics, we've had some great book critics on the show, you know, uh, Pamela Paul from the New York Times, Washington Post Ron Charles, or Oscar William, but I'm I'm not going to exempt them from this because I I like it when folks like that review my book or assign my book to be reviewed, but they're also editors um, or have been editors. They assign book reviews. They're organizing and curating the book review page or section for their paper. But when you're talking about pure book critics, there's nobody... I think I enjoy reading more than Laura Miller. Same. I feel like I've been reading her reviews forever, you know, in Salon and then in the New York Times and now in Slate. And I just always really loved the originality of her voice. And, and she's always has, always has a take. And I just, I just, I'm so excited to have her on the show. She's really smart. I mean, I just, yeah, feel really lucky to have her. And so it's a, whenever I read a book that she's written about, um, you know, as you were saying, I felt like, like the best criticism helps you to understand the book better. And, and really lucky for us, we have Laura on the show today. Uh, Laura is currently books and culture columnist at Slate. In 1995, she co-founded Salon.com and worked there as an editor and staff writer for 20 years. She's the author of The Magician's Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia. 
Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Guardian, The LA Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications, including The New York Times Book Review, where she wrote the last word column for two years. She's the editor of the Salon.com Reader's Guide to Contemporary Authors, uh, which came out in 2000. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have a lot of things we want to talk to you about. But we want to start with a piece that you wrote recently for Slate called The People Who Voice Audiobooks with Diverse Characters Are Squirming Right Now. In the piece, you describe the audiobook world as a, quote, low-profile, unglamorous field that doesn't attract a lot of attention from the press, although it attracts a lot of attention from me because I love audiobooks. <laughs> uh, you've said in other interviews that you listen to a lot of audiobooks. So what made you decide to take a closer look at, at this issue? Well, actually, this was not an issue that I'd thought about a huge amount, except with respect to gender, because one of the things that will make me bail on an audiobook is if it's a male narrator and the women's voices sound kind of parodic and, and you know, overly high pitched and it's it's kind of hard to characterize what a bad female voice is done by a male narrator there's a lot of them who do do it really well but um often especially with like a sort of commercial fiction or a thriller you you get this guy who has a kind of deep voice and then the women sound like oh no yeah <laughs> no i can't do it you know it's just they just they sound like a parody of 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 femininity and um but i i hadn't really encountered especially a white narrator producing a voice of a of a person of color or just a person with an accent that seemed just uh you know offensive or terrible but an editor of mine had heard a fairly recent audiobook in which this was the case and um and it was, and that was sort of the initial inspiration for this. And then I, I was familiar enough with the field that I knew, you know, I knew, for example, that Cassandra Campbell had read Delia Owens's Where the Crawdads Sing, and that the characters, there are a couple of black characters in that who really, the characters on the page really skate close to caricature. But I hadn't been as aware of that. Uh, because I had just listened to the audiobook, and then when I decided to write a piece about where the crawdads sing, I noticed on the page that the character seemed much more cartoonish than with Cassandra's narration, and that increased my interest in the idea of how narrators deal with that particular challenge. I mean, right currently, if you have a book by a let's let's just take a black author for example um and the main character is black it's almost i mean i i can't think of any instance where the where the narrator hired wouldn't also be black these days and i think that's been the case for maybe the past five years um it's very unusual that there there isn't an attempt to make that match, but it didn't used to be that way. So one of the things that um, I decided to look into when working on the piece was how someone, um, Grover Gardner in particular, who is a who is a white narrator who um, is just you know among the most beloved voices in in audiobooks, how he has dealt with that over the years because he is someone who's very sensitive to and aware of these issues and his feelings about it have changed over the years. So uh, th those are sort of the seeds of this idea, realizing that in some sense, 
if you have a multiple character uh, novel, you know, and it, especially if it takes place in an urban setting and it's, and the characters are racially diverse, at some point, somebody is going to be voicing a character of a, of a different uh, cultural or ethnic background. And, and that it feels increasingly tricky these days. It's interesting. It reminds me of something, Whitney, that you often say when you talk about how um, a lot of people right now are writing novels of cities. And so inevitably, um, people are writing or including perspectives of characters who are not aligned with their own identities. And you were mentioning um, Laura Grover Gardner and, and you quote him as saying the whole industry was geared towards middle aged white businessmen. And he specifically mentions doing Scott Turow's 1990 novel Burden of Proof, which was narrated by a Latino lawyer. And, and he says that he wouldn't narrate it now. And that seems like such a clear example of the kind of shift that you're talking about. But you, you point out that in third person novels where the main character is, say, white, you might also have secondary characters who are South Asian or black or, I don't know, Hungarian. And there isn't really the budget um, to hire a narrator of the appropriate identity to voice each of those characters. So what do, what do they do? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a totally different type of production. That's a, a, a dramatic production. I mean, sometimes audiobook producers do that, but there isn't the budget as a general rule. And I personally really dislike that style of audiobook narration. There, there was a, this has nothing to do with any kind of, um, you know, identity issues, but uh, there was a recent audiobook of Charlotte's Web that was narrated by Meryl Streep, but the character, the dialogue is voiced by a bunch of different characters. And it, I, I find it disruptive and, and annoying when that, when that's done. Um, besides which, you know, you get into this weird issue if you have like a white narrator and let's say he's narrating a book with a white male main character, but that person meets a lot of different people in the course of the narrative. Are you only going to bring in actors to voice the black characters or the Latino? Like, like what about old characters? Or, you know, what about women? You know, it just could we just become, you know, also really unwieldy and you just hire sometimes people just to come in and say a few lines because they're minor characters. So um, so the way that the really great narrators in the business are doing it now is to really uh, they really ha- bring down the sort of voice effects that they use, like, like accents um, and Grover narrates a, a series of sort of mysteries about this lawyer, and they always have dogs in them. It's not particularly well known, but the you know the main character is this lawyer in New Jersey, and then he has a guy who works for him who um, is black, who is an I think he's an ex-con, and he said. I'm sure if you went back and listened to the first, there's like been like 13 books. If you listen to the first one that I did, the characters would be a lot more, the narration would be a lot more exaggerated. And I did, did not go back and listen to a whole book, but I did listen to some samples. I didn't hear the black character, but I did hear that the main character, this New Jerseyan is you know, is ridiculously New Jersey in the first one. And in the most recent one, the accent is really almost non-existent. Um, so I think the main thing that people do is just avoid accents. And I suppose it's trickier if you have 
you know, characters with particular regional accents or particular class accents with um, uh, the narrator of Ruman alums Leave the World Behind is a white woman and she has to narrate two black characters, but those characters are middle class. And so they speak in a less accented form of English. You know, they're not speaking um, black vernacular English. And so it's not as tricky for her as it is for, say, Eduardo Ballerini, if he is, you know, narrating some cop novel and um, they, you know, there's a suspect who's black. You know, they arrest a, a, a poor black suspect. You know, you, you, that we kind of expect that person to have a particular kind of accent. And is it going to sound weird if he doesn't? Is it, is it going to be strange in some way? So I think it's harder. It, it really is a case by case thing. I'm reminded as you're talking of my experiences watching even just old movies and listening to radio dramas. It sounds like the tradition of audiobooks maybe arises almost in theater and has been shifting more to just plain reading. You're right that it's it seems less actorly when they're not using like accents. And and Cassandra Campbell, who is another sort of legendary narrator who I interviewed, said to me, look, a- actors love to do accents. When people were talking about what a great actor Meryl Streep was early in her career, it was always about how she could do all of these accents. It used to be like the way that you would determine how, you know, it was like one of the, the, the measurements by which people decided someone was uh, a, a great actor or not. But um, I think that they still use acting techniques. It's just not really almost technical ones like accents. I mean, because everybody who does this is an actor, I should clarify. I didn't interview a single audiobook narrator who wasn't also an actor of some kind. And they have techniques for kind of conceptualizing characters. And over and over again, they told me, instead of thinking about what this character's accent would be, I think about what the character wants in this situation. You know, I focus on that. I focus on what the person's motivations are as an actor, which is a really well-known acting technique. And a similar similar strategies that, that actors have used for a long time in their work to, to make characters more vivid. And the thing that was interesting to me, I was trying to think back, like, what is it that I like about audiobooks and I guess I never really thought, I, I always imagined that this is a person, one person who is reading me this story and that they're reading it. I never thought that they were like playing the other characters. Maybe that's particular to me. I don't know. But um, one particular line in your piece, you mentioned Michelle Cobb, uh, who's uh, the producer and executive director of the Audio Publishers Association. She tells you that she and her colleagues have tried to figure out how they can sensitively ask narrators to provide producers with information on their backgrounds, such as gender identity, sexual orientation, and disability, which made me think of this interesting sort of delicate issue. Right? And these gray issues are very curious and interesting to me because obviously they're doing that because they want to know if the person, what their race is, and they may not be able to tell just by their voice, right? Or their sexual yeah. orientation, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Is it true that certain people sound white or, you know, because I remember I was listening to a, a podcast just the other day. I can't remember. It might have been something from the Daily Beast. And one of the guests said, well, I'm saying this. I, I know that I sound white, but I am I am African-American. And then he went on to say something about <laughs> race. Right. And he must yeah. know that people perceive his voice in a different way than what his race is. And that must that happens all the time. 
I think. Uh, yeah, it, it does happen. I mean, one of the, the narrators that I talked to, Kevin Free, is very happy with the audiobook world. I think he feels like there's a lot of um, concern and attention to these issues, but very frustrated with the voiceover world because he is not... Uh, he he had he was in this sort of catch twenty two situation where there's I guess a certain amount of advertising voiceover work that is specifically focused at a black audience and he would never get hired uh, for those jobs because people thought that he sounded quote too white unquote but then because he was black he also wouldn't get hired for a lot of jobs that were just sort of white or what people would probably think of as neutral which basically usually does mean subconsciously white um, work. You know, people would be like, oh, he's black. We can't hire him to do this thing that has nothing to do with blackness. But then he was, they, you know, the, the black commercial producers would not hire him because they thought that he sounded white. So he was just like, he was pretty fed up with that, with that world. Um, but I mean, Kevin also, like he narrates uh, Martha Wells' Murderbot uh, series. This is really highly thought of science fiction series where he plays a robot. He narrated all of Eric Carle's picture books because there are audio books of picture books. So he, you know, as a narrator, he's certainly not limited to, um, you know, books with black main characters or by black authors. Um, uh, may, I don't know. Maybe somebody else would be. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, actually encounter anyone who felt that they were not getting certain jobs because they sounded too much like their particular ethnic group. I mean, most of the, most audiobook narrators have really uh, fantastic voices. I mean, it was really fun doing all these interviews, but they are somewhat on the generic side. You know, you can, they have a lot of control over their voices, and so they give themselves that sort of neutral, aka sort of white-sounding voice. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's interesting because it's like, I mean, to some extent, right, we're not using these words, but a lot of what we're talking about is stereotyping and profiling. And um, Laura, you mentioned, like, you know, some of these folks sound generic, right? I mean, you do you have to be South Asian to sound South Asian if you are South Asian, then you sound South Asian because you're one of the people who's defining what being South Asian sounds like. But so much of casting doesn't seem to get at... Would you be mad, Sugi, if I told you that you didn't sound South Asian? I just don't, I don't think I would believe you. Um, I'm also aware of like my own ability to code switch. You know, it's also true that th I have certain relatives who, if they're on the phone with a South Asian person versus if they're on the phone with a non-South Asian person, I can tell. Um, and I'm pretty sure that I do this myself. And, um, you know, my brother and I have joked about this for years. And then, um, Laura, in the piece, you referenced the character of Apu from The Simpsons, the famous source spot of the South Asian community, voiced by Hank Azaria, who's, who's white and who like sort of doubled down for years. And But then after years of criticism and specifically like that documentary by Harry Kondabolu, finally stepped away from the role and said, you know, I'm sorry. And the problem with Apu is that his accent was terrible in a stereotype, that exaggeration that you're talking about, like degree. Um and you've mentioned also these other possibilities of, of people voicing folks from um, identities other than their own in, in what it sounds like are nuanced and successful ways, which is really interesting to me because, I don't know, it does seem like they're getting at those um, like margins of identity or like maybe beyond what people 
beyond how people would profile certain identities, like talking about motivation. That's very, we were talking before about people being actorly. Um, and of course, motivation is actorly too. It's also writerly. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I was also curious. I was curious because the, the sort of big literary novel that had um, kind of a large cast production that I can think of in recent years that was quite theatrical was Lincoln and the Bardo. Did you listen to that? I did not. I did not listen to that because uh, I had already read and reviewed the book. So uh, in print. So that's (laughs) I'm usually just trying to consume as many different works that come out in a given year as possible. But I have heard great things about it. I I understand it had a multiple actor cast, which seems appropriate given the, the way that it was written. Yeah, I think, um, you know, some celebrities, some folks who were non-actors. Um, and so I, ha- I haven't heard this one myself, but I remember reading about the production and being curious. And what you were just saying kind of gets at my next question. I was, I'm curious about how you experience books differently when you listen versus when you read on the page. I can't. I haven't been that successful in listening to audiobooks myself, I think, because when I read on the page, I like to go back and flip forward. And and that obviously isn't as easy to do with audio. And you've said that you sometimes stop reading when a book isn't working for you, that that's, you think that that's fine. And, and I was wondering whether the same is true for you for, say, a, you know, a badly produced audiobook and what the shift is like for you between print and audio. If, if when you're reviewing, do you ever go back and forth? Or when you're reviewing, do you always, do you always read on the page? How does that work for you? If I'm reviewing, I I kind of have to read on the page because I need to be making sure that I mark down specific details. In addition to like exact quotes, which you have to get right and you have to be able to have a citation of the specific page to give your editor, um, there are also certain facts that you can sort of, you know, that I need to flag, like how old is this character, you know? how long have they lived in Chicago? So I just need to make notes of a lot of pieces of information and and exact quotes if I'm actually going to be writing about something. I tend to use audiobooks either just surely as entertainment or, uh, you know, like something to listen to in the car or, um, or going out for a walk or to sort of fill in the gaps of my yearly reading. So like I listen to the the audiobook of Where the Crawdads Sing because the book was just this huge, huge bestseller. And I just wanted to know what it was like, you know, I just as, as I, I mean, I, I can't say that I, I uh, read it for pleasure exactly, but just to be informed about what's going on in the, in the cultural realm that I cover. And I, and it turned out that, uh, in sort of looking into the author of that book, I uh, got information about her past that was really useful in writing a story that was kind of a, a big story. And so at that point, I wanted to write about how her past, which was had sort of been obscured uh, by her publisher and herself, um, played into the book that she wrote because there were certain coincidences that were you know kind of striking and um and to do that I needed to get 
I don't usually, I usually work with electronic books because I, I live in a really small town and I can't afford to get on mailing lists that just send me tons and tons of books and will just overload the local PO. And But do you remember when you could go to the library and check out those huge caseload things of tapes? I remember doing that in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, and you can also still also check out CDs. So, so so then like there'll be a book that I just didn't have time to read because I was working on something else but I know it might be an important book that you know in a given year and I I want to or it's very popular I want to know everybody's talking about it you know just for one reason or another to sort of cover my beat I often use audiobooks for that purpose the term book critic does not hint at pleasure but I'm going to guess that most book critics like writers got into their gig because they took pleasure in reading in fact, your book, The Magician's uh, Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia, is partly about falling in love with C.S. Lewis's books as a child. Now, I noticed that as I became a professional writer myself, I am constantly reading things that I have to read and, and not reading them as a pleasurable part of my life. So how do you do your job and keep having fun as a reader? Well, I, I have found audiobooks really useful for that, partly because the amount of reading that I have to do professionally and then the writing that follows that is very sedentary work and I get very restless. So uh, listening to an audiobook enables me to like go out and garden or go for a walk or do some chores around the house, get various things done that I have to do and also be more physically active um, because it does sometimes when I that, you know, I have to turn over something really quickly and I've got to read a book for, you know, five or six hours in a day. I feel like I'm going crazy having to sit <laughs> still for all of that time. So, um, so you know, I, I think my, my reading for pleasure is mostly in the audio form and my reading for work is mostly in the print form. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's how it breaks down mostly. I, I, I reserve like all of my sitting in a chair time reading for professional reading because that has to be sitting in a chair time and then when I'm liberated enough to like go out and work in the garden or or uh, cook a big meal or bake a friend's birthday cake or something like that I'll often put on that's when I'll have my pleasure reading in the form of an audiobook that's um, such a nice way to think about, I feel like there's so many writers who talk about how walking or running helps them to write. And it makes a lot of sense to me that moving would also help one to read. Um, I think another way of having fun as a reader for me, at least is, is seeing a writer call out some BS form of absurdity that I noticed and have been dying to see someone else notice and define, or just the pleasure of seeing something named, um, which is exactly what you did in your review of the literary survey Wonderworks by Angus Fletcher. And it's a pan, it's hilarious. It was so fun to read. I wondered if you could read to us from that review. Okay, sure. I'll just read the first paragraph. While reading Angus Fletcher's absurd book, Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. I kept thinking of Alain de Botton. When the Swiss philosopher published How Proust Can Change Your Life in 1997, his book was partly a joke. People have always read fiction hoping to better themselves, but Marcel Proust, a sickly, snobbish neurasthenic so sensitive that he worked and slept in a cork-lined bedroom, seems a dubious source of life lessons. 
Depotan knew this, of course, but so powerful is the pull of self-help and its lucrative rewards that soon he'd become a full-fledged purveyor, delivering TED Talks on a kinder, gentler philosophy of success and co-founding the School of Life, which provides classes on the key ingredients of emotional well-being. Thank you. I... <laughs> The idea of, of art as like a self-improvement or something that can be reduced to a TED Talk is really what you're sort of uh, going after here. And I agree with you. And I'm so tired of seeing <laughs> it all the time. Um, uh, I just thought you did such a great job of sort of explaining that. But did you know at some point like, OK, this I've been waiting to say this and this is the perfect vehicle for me? Well, it is something that I think of a lot. It, it, it doesn't usually come up in terms of just reading a book. It usually comes up in terms of how people talk about books. And I think sometimes I think it's a particularly it's a, it's a particular weakness of American culture. I remember reading by uh, Leonard Marcus a, a history of children's fiction in America. And he was talking about the early, the very, the earliest colonial period um, when the uh, colonies were run by Puritans almost entirely, and their difficulty with the whole idea of fiction, um, because it's lies, and they how they tried to work out a puritanical rationale for sometimes giving children works of fiction. Um, and they talked about diff different kinds of lies, like some are the devil's lies, which are meant to lure you away from um, God's path, but others are what they called sporting lies, which are just lies told for the fun of it, you know, <laughs> uh, you know because they are fun, which is basically what fiction really is yeah. it's a sporting lie but the american idea that everything we do needs to be channeled into some kind of publicly agreed upon virtue or self-improvement is really you know that it that everything needs to be teaching you some kind of lesson and it has to have a moral of some kind i think it 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 is descended from that uh, that puritanical discomfort with the idea of a sporting lie that you would just read it just for its own sake is is really kind of alien to the to the American um, mentality. So Laura, of course, this piece, like I mentioned, it's a pan. And I wonder when you write something negative, how do you anticipate? Or think about reaction. Do you worry that the writer is going to get mad? And I don't know. In the old days, you know, you'd get an angry writer writing into the letter section of the New York Times Book Review or the New York Review of Books. Um, and I guess, you know, some people still do this, but so much of the conversation today is elsewhere. So I'm curious about what they do, whether they, um, you know, pelt you with mentions on Twitter or film mean TikToks. How do you hear from your readers? Um, well, if you're talking about people whose books I've reviewed negatively, it I don't do it that much anymore because um, generally my editor at Slate wants me to write about things I have strong feelings about. Let me put it that way. And I had strong feelings about this book. Um, I never heard from Angus Fletcher. Um, and most authors may have the urge to respond 
to a negative review, but usually their publicists stop them. It's considered to be really bad form, and it just becomes like a spectacle for like a, a jeering mob to be entertained by. Like it, it, it it's not. Weirdly enough, Alain de Baton did that himself when uh, a critic named Caleb Crane negatively reviewed one of his more recent books, and he, you know, sent a lot of nasty emails and and tweeted a lot of nasty tweets at at, at Caleb, and as a result, he looked like a fool. Um, so, you know, mostly they they don't do that. Um, I'm sure they they fume privately. Now, I mean, I think that's even riskier now because let's say Angus Fletcher sent me like a nasty email. I mean, I didn't make any ad hominem attacks on him. They were really, it was really just a um, a complaint about his book itself. So uh, I, I don't think I was out of line in any of, uh, any of those points. So we would just have a disagreement about the merits of his book and if he sent me like a really nasty note he, he would just be escalating it into the realm of the personal in a way that uh would be just out of line and 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 for all he knows i could just post screenshot that and post that publicly and make him look like a fool so um I, you know, I actually think it's probably rarer now. I mean, definitely there were some sort of um, un, sort of semi un, like I, there was a particular incident um, uh, way in the past when I was still working at Salon where I wrote something. Sorry, it's been I've written so many book reviews over the years. I don't always remember that I've even written them. I wrote something about a Caleb Carr book, uh, negative review, and he just totally flipped out and. Um, sent these long letters to Salon denouncing me and and um, and full of insults and high dudgeon. And my the editor of Salon was thrilled and published all of them. And, and, <laughs> and it's not like, um, you know, like I ever for a moment felt bad for my own, you know, I didn't feel like ashamed or as if I appeared badly because, again, I kept my criticism to the work that he was publishing and selling to people. That's my job. And um, and he made a lot of ad hominem attacks on me. And he just lost his temper and he didn't have a publicist who, who could control him. And um, and as a result, I still sometimes hear from people who remember that, <laughs> that incident. Uh, I have a story, Sugi, pardon me, I want to tell that I almost never get to tell. But uh, it fits perfectly here, which is that I I went to high school with the daughter of a of a pretty powerful Kansas City mobster who uh, actually was involved in the in the in the events that happened in the movie Casino when the Kansas City mob bought used Teamster money to buy hotels in Vegas, stole money out of those hotels, flew it back to Kansas City and distributed it to all these people. And he was so he was a serious guy, and he had just gotten out of jail. And I went to dinner with him and. Uh, with and his daughter, and he he said the thing that he enjoyed most doing in jail was reading the letters section of the New York Times Book Review when authors would get pissed <laughs> off. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was funny that a mo even a mobster could recognize a good fight when uh, when he yeah, saw it. Yeah, yeah. It's just generally just it, it it's not a good look for for most authors to to make that move and um, 
the fact that publications are just thrilled to, to publish it should be an indication that they're not getting their point across. I think also that, I mean, it seems like a lot of publications give the critic um, also the right to respond if a, if a letter is particularly sharp. I'm thinking of um, my recently retired colleague, Charles Baxter, who had like a fantastic response to a letter to the editor about he had reviewed a book um, about Lovecraft and the writer wrote in and then Charlie. Oh, wait, was this S.T. Joshi? It was. Um, oh, my God. He is such a loon. I have <laughs> he has also sent me a lot of 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 emails of oh, that guy. He's like a character out of a Naipaul novel. I think also that, I mean, just, yeah, going for Charlie is not a good idea, not a good plan. Um, So I very much, yeah, I enjoyed that exchange. And it it also just, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, on the the page there, um, sometimes the publication will make it so that the critic gets to respond and therefore gets the last word. And the thing that is weird online is that there is no last word because someone could just do it for eternity. (laughs) And some people do, which has invented a whole new form of... um, it's kind of bizarre, unable to, um, un- unable to let things go, or, or as, as you say, I mean, there's, I, it's so rare to see someone respond and look good. Well, the the one case in which um, someone has every right to respond and be angry is if the reviewer gets a point of fact wrong, you know, which is one of the reasons why we fact check these pieces and we try to make sure that we know that the character is nine, not thirteen, or. Whatever, because that can change a lot about, uh, I'm sorry, my cat just discovered I'm up here. <laughs> she hates when I do this. So <laughs> Tell her to write into the letter to the editor then. Yeah. I know, I know. Um, if, if you get something wrong, and particularly, this is particularly true of nonfiction books, or if you accuse someone of getting a fact wrong, and you are in fact wrong, then that author should... Be, you know, they should write in and correct that, and they should um, get a hearing. And if they are right in correcting the critic, the critic should apologize and the publication should post a correction. Um, I, I don't know. I missed this um, this uh, Joshi Baxter exchange. I would guess that it probably wasn't about a matter of fact. But um, but Joshi is very florid in his um, denunciation, so I'm sure that it probably was seen as very amusing by some editor, and so they decided to publish it. And in that case, I mean, he's also kind of insulting, so I would guess that you know you would want to let your your writer respond if it's something is just gratuitously insulting. Um, you know, it, it it really it really kind of depends on what the the issue is. And um, and if if the author has a legitimate complaint and like someone saying this book doesn't work or it's boring or it's that like that's a subjective opinion that a, that's a critic's job to deliver that and it can't you can't say that that is wrong necessarily so it it it's it's a it's really a different issue. So I do, I mean, I take your point, Laura, about um, the importance of people also being willing to hear valid corrections. And I think that's, I mean, people who are disproportionately affected by sort of that, the fact that it does look like sour grapes, if you say anything, are, are of course, the people who are um, affected by things like systemic issues um, in publishing and just sort of in general. So I think the fact that also journalists 
have become more open to listening to feedback and also that there are more avenues to provide it is also something that's helpful, even as there's a lot of noise out there. Um, I'm really curious about which critics you read, who your favorites are, and, and when you read criticism, what you're looking for, what you find satisfying in it. Well, um, it, uh, it's hard to define. Like, first of all, I'm looking for something that I haven't heard before. And because we sort of are in a period of sort of uniformity of speech, um, that doesn't really happen a lot. Like people just say the same things over and over again in many reviews. And, um, and that can be pretty dull. And sometimes you feel like you don't even really need to read it because you can already you already know what it says. Um, so I'm always sort of looking around for something that seems to take a different approach that 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 gives me some insight. I mean, you mentioned before, um, like someone who denounces something that has been bothering you for a long time. And I definitely I identify with that, you know, like one of my particular pet peeves is poetry readings where the reader has a really sing-song voice it just drives me <laughs> crazy and um and I can remember when uh Judith Shulevitz in the New York Times made some remark about how much she hates poetry readings for that reason I was like oh thank god you know I I appreciate that but I more want somebody who gives me something that I haven't thought of before so I think probably the person who I the most get that from is Zadie Smith when she writes criticism. She's probably my favorite critic, but she doesn't do it that often. I really like the um, Dwight Garner and Parl Sagal of the New York Times, although she's leaving to go to the New Yorker, which is is actually great because I think she was really born to write more in depth pieces. I've oh, I've loved her work since yeah since since the early days I can remember her writing a piece about Muriel Spark for the New Yorker's website you know it only appeared on the web and just thinking oh she's so good um, and she doesn't really get that much of an opportunity to write pieces like that at the times because it's just kind of a treadmill um, I like Laura Marsh at the New Republic she wrote a great review of the um, Blake Bailey's uh, Philip Roth biography before the whole scandal on that broke, which is really perceptive. Um, there's, I like Daniel Mendelson, who's been writing for the uh, New York Review of Books for a really long time. And one of the, the he's great because he has a, a depth of knowledge in a particular field, which is the classics, which is really useful for writing about, you know, both works from that period and the whole Western tradition that comes out of that. And I really like reading someone who has like a focus or an expertise. Like, like maybe there are just a little bit too many generalists now that we're in the age of internet criticism. And so um, when someone brings like a lot of knowledge to bear on something so that I actually learn something from the piece, I, I love that. Um, I like uh, Elaine Blair, who recently wrote something for, I can't remember if it was the New York Review of Books or the London Review, a great piece about uh, writers who are sort of, whose work is recovered, who you know are sort of forgotten, and then their work is recovered, and like, really, is that always such a great thing, which was very kind of counterintuitive 
um, but also really perceptive. And um, uh, British critics like Jenny Turner, I, I like a lot of British critics, um, Jenny Turner and Francis Spufford when he does he's not exactly a critic although he has been but he's just such a fantastic writer anyway that um that I uh you know I read anything that guy wrote I mean he but he picks some pretty strange topics in terms of his books but he's just like every sentence is is delightful and I still like James Wood even though I don't share his taste at all that's a great list. Um, it's kind of amazing. I'm, I'm taking notes here. All right. Fine. You know, one of the things that I'm sort of concerned about is that now that a lot of people are going to substacks, like a lot of writers are going, like I read a really great piece on um, by a writer named Daisy Alioto. I've never heard of her before, but like, uh, like I saw the tag for this, somebody linked to it from some, uh, probably Twitter. Um, it was about TikTok and the aesthetics of suburbia. And um, it was so perceptive and so intelligent. And I thought, I just never would have seen this if somebody hadn't linked to it, if I hadn't had happened to be looking at Twitter at that particular moment. Um, you know, then I started following her on Twitter so that I can you know, find out other things that she writes. But like, I worry that in this sort of balkanization, like where writers are going off and becoming their own solo brands, it's going to be harder to find those critics that you, that you really, you know, who really bring something fresh to the conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of in the same way that I miss, I mean, I still browse in bookstores and at the library and there's like the pleasurable happenstance of the book next to the book that you intended to pick up. Um, and there's an internet version of that too. And, and maybe you're right that that's slipping away um, or becoming rarer. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like you've given us so much to think about and it's just been a huge pleasure to have you on. Listeners, don't miss The Magician's Book, A Skeptic's Adventures in Narnia and Laura's column in Slate. Laura, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks for being here. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of most of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our own YouTube channel. Our new website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Special thanks to University of Minnesota student Shashank Murley, who designed the site, and recent University of Minnesota graduate Dylan Mietinen, who helped with its initial conception. Happy reading, writing, and listening from fiction, nonfiction to all of our listeners. And this time around, really special thanks to our longtime show producer, Andrea Tudhope. This is our last episode with Andrea. She is headed to a new gig. We wish her tons of luck and are really happy to have worked with her for the past couple of years. You can find her work online, and we recommend that you do. Andrea, lots of